Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together this morning, that here in this place we can be reminded where our trust and faith ultimately lie, that in the midst of a chaotic world we can look to you and your strength alone. And so, Lord, we ask that you would indeed open our hearts and our minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So throughout this series, we've been looking at a passage that comes to us from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, chapter 6, in which he talks about the armor of God. And honestly, this image of the armor of God seems like a really strange one to us today in the 21st century because when when we think about battles and wars, we we don't think about people dressed in suits of armor with swords and shields and and helmets. That's just something that that we don't typically see in our world today unless we're watching like epic action movies, right? That's where we would typically expect to find uh, a suit of armor, someone wearing uh, a suit of armor. And so the question becomes, what does this ancient image have to do with how we live in the 21st century? And what we've been seeing is that actually it's incredibly relevant. Because in this passage and with this image, Paul is reminding us that we as Christians, we fight a very different kind of battle. We do not fight against our fellow human beings. Rather, we fight against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms which seek to divide and to destroy us. We are to fight side by side with our God as he brings salvation and healing and hope and joy and peace into this dark and broken world. And because we're in a different kind of battle with a different kind of enemy, we need a different set of weapons. We need a different suit of armor. And so each week in this series, we've been learning how to fight as we've been looking at each peace. And this morning, we're going to be looking at one more, and that is the shield of faith. And here's what Paul has to say about it. He tells us to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, I don't know about you. When I hear flaming arrows, my mind does think, uh, does, uh, think about epic action movies. I think about some of my favorite films like Gladiator, right? Where there's this huge battle is about to take place and the Romans line up and they have their archers and there's this lo- row of fire in front of them and they light their arrows and then they just start launching flaming arrows into the ranks of the enemy soldiers and it's this huge sweeping battle scene. And, and that's typically where my mind goes. But honestly... As I started to do some research, what I found is that flaming arrows were very rarely used in ancient times. And in fact, they were almost never used in open battle against your enemy. You see, the bow and arrow was indeed a a huge military advantage back in those times because trained archers could actually launch... uh, Arrows at a high rate of speed, uh, at a high frequency, across long distances with an incredible amount of accuracy. The bow and arrow ensured that you could actually whittle down your enemy long before your, your front line ever met their front line. But when it came to flaming arrows, the story was entirely different. And the reason why was because flaming arrows were actually designed very differently. Unlike the standard arrow, the flaming arrow was longer. Its shaft was longer. And the reason why was because if the tip of your arrow was on fire and you were to draw that back, you didn't want to light your bow hand on fire. And so they had much longer shafts. 
But then also the tip of the arrow was different because, uh, again, they would either wrap it in cloth that was soaked in oil so that it could light, or they actually had these specially designed iron tips that almost looked like cages. And they could stick a red-hot coal in the cage and, and then fire it. But what this meant was that the arrow was a lot heavier. It didn't fly as far, and it was far less accurate which is why you would never use it in open battle against the enemy. Its range wasn't good. It, wouldn't, uh, it wasn't guaranteed to hit its target. So the question was, when were flaming arrows used? And why would Paul use that illustration? Well, flaming arrows were used in one instance and one instance alone. And that was in siege warfare. You see, when an army came and it wanted to take a fortress or it wanted to capture a city, they would send their archers with these flaming arrows and they would lob these flaming arrows over the walls in the hopes that they would land on the roofs of the houses inside. Because in ancient times, the roofs were often made with, with uh, hay or straw or, or wood, and so they were flammable. And the idea was that you would launch these arrows over the walls, and then the enemy would be busy running around inside the city trying to put out all these fires, and they would leave the walls undefended. And now they were vulnerable to attack. See, flaming arrows weren't effective in open battle, but they were very effective in hitting your enemy where they were comfortable in their own homes, in the fortresses where they thought that they were safe. And I think that's the reason that Paul uses this illustration, because what he's saying is he's saying we're at our most vulnerable when we're at our most comfortable. I find it interesting that the very first temptation in the Bible actually comes in paradise. It's in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are, are dwelling in supposed safety, and it's there in the midst of paradise that we read the following. It says, The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was right there with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves and hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, it's right here in paradise that the first temptation comes. And what we see the devil doing is he's just whittling away at Adam and Eve's trust in God by making them believe that they're safe and comfortable. He says, look at this fruit. Does that look dangerous to you? Of course not. It doesn't look dangerous. It's beautiful. It actually tastes phenomenal. Go ahead and touch it. Touch it. See, nothing, ha nothing bad has happened to you. And see, this is the way that the devil loves to work. He loves to play in paradise because he knows that it's in the midst of our comfort and our prosperity that we are tempted to put our trust in things other than God. It's in the midst of our comfort and our prosperity that we're tempted to put our trust in things other than God. And this is the lesson for us that Paul wants to drive home. It's our prosperity and our comfort that is often what is most dangerous because the devil loves to use it against us. 
We end up putting our trust in things other than God only to find out when the devil comes with his flaming arrows that we've built our lives on straw and hay. And the flaming darts of the evil one come along and they set it all ablaze. And if anyone has a hard time believing this, we need only look back to 2020 to see how true this was, right? I think there are many things that we are tempted to put our trust in. Things like our health. You know, my family's healthy. We're, we're all healthy. We're all doing well. We're, we're all in good shape. And then what happens? A, glo- a global pandemic comes along and there's no cure. There's no vaccine. And suddenly it just starts to devastate our communities. Or we say, oh, you know, business is going well. My job is secure. We're making tons of money. And then the pandemic hits our economy. And suddenly people are out of work and, and being kicked out of their homes. Or we tend to put our faith in, in our government. We say, you know, I, we, we live in, the, one of the, in a democracy, one of the greatest governments on the face of the earth. And then what happens? Our government starts to fall apart from the inside out over and over and over again this past year. Things that we thought we could place our trust in suddenly were set ablaze. And that's Paul's point. In the midst of our comfort and our prosperity, we put our hope and our trust in things that do not Last, I love how the 17th century writer Thomas Brooks puts it. He says, the world siren-like sings to us and then sinks us. And that is exactly what we've experienced in 2020. We were hit where we were most comfortable because that was where we were most vulnerable. And when we put our trust in those things and suddenly they are set ablaze, our whole life seems to fall apart and that is this passage's warning to us is to consider where do you put your trust because the devil's flaming darts are going to set ablaze anything of straw or hay or wood anything other than god that we would place our hope and our trust in but there was something in the ancient world that flaming darts were totally ineffective against and that was shields. Because Roman shields, first and foremost, were these massive shields that covered every vital part of a person's body. Okay, and, and furthermore, this is a replica shield. It's, it's kind of made of metal, but uh, actual Roman shields were made of wood, hard wood, uh, oak wood, and then they would actually stretch leather over the wood and around its frame, and then uh, its rim would have metal, and the center would have metal. And one of the things that the Romans would often do is even before they went into battle, they could douse these shields in water, and as they marched toward their enemy, they would march side by side, shield linked to shield, and then when the enemy's archers started to fire arrows at them, uh, flaming or otherwise, what they could do is they could take this position in which the line behind you would put their shields up over your head, and they would form this kind of protective casing around the entire legion. And it was in those moments when flaming arrows had absolutely no effect because these slow-moving, highly inaccurate, flaming things posed no danger whatsoever to a fully armed Roman legion. In fact, even standard arrows, which were far more deadly and dangerous, would have very little effect on a fully equipped Roman legion marching into battle. Flaming arrows have no effect against the shields that can extinguish them because the soldiers who hold them were fireproof. Flaming arrows looked dumb. They looked stupid. They were totally ineffective. 
And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, rather than being caught asleep and unawares in your homes, take up the shield because you're in a battle. And what is our shield? Paul says our shield is faith. Now, we tend to think of faith nowadays as simply belief. Like, I believe certain things to be true. I believe certain statements to be true. But in the ancient world, that's not what faith meant. Faith actually meant trust. It meant to trust in something or someone that was totally reliable. It wasn't just something that you believed in your head. It was something you felt in your heart. You, you, you invested your entire life into it because you knew that when push came to shove, this was the one thing that you could count on. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, that's the kind of faith you need. You need a faith in God which can extinguish all the darts of the evil one. Not faith in, in these temporary things which can so easily be set ablaze, but you need to have faith in the one who will provide for us no matter what who goes with us into battle, who conquers on our behalf, who already has the victory. And that's what he says is going to protect us in those moments when we're most vulnerable. But I think that this is part of the reason why the life of faith is so hard for some people, because it's hard to trust someone that you don't know. And oftentimes, Jesus calls us to go into uncomfortable places, he calls us, calls us to champion the cause of justice, to speak up on behalf of the voiceless, to go into places of poverty and brokenness to bring hope and healing and new life, to lay down our power and our privilege, to sacrifice for the benefit of others. Over and over again, Jesus puts it so succinctly. He says, anyone who wants to follow me needs to take up their cross and come after me. And in those moments, the question then becomes, well, can I trust you? Is God really going to have my back? Even in these very dangerous and uncertain circumstances, even in these times and places that he's calling me to go, does God have my back? Will he provide? Is he trustworthy? Which is why I love what Paul writes in another one of his letters. It's his letter to the church in Rome. And this is what he says. He says, what then shall we say In response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, what Paul says is he says, when you're wondering if God is truly trustworthy, you need only look at Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, what you see is how far God is willing to go with us and for us. He was willing to enter into this dark and broken world to become one of us, to suffer alongside us, to take the punishment for us, to endure rejection, slander, torture, 
and execution. But more than that, he rose again from the dead. And when you look at him, you can see that God truly is worthy of your trust because he has already defeated the powers of sin and death. And he did it for us. For those of us whom he loves. For those of us who now are called to put our trust in him. He said that this is the gift that God has given. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul says when you look at him, you see that he is infinitely trustworthy. And his promise is to go with you wherever he calls you. Because in him, he will not only walk with us into danger, but he will walk with us through it. He will not only walk with us into those places of discomfort and hardship, but will ultimately deliver us and the entire world. That there will come a day when the victory is brought to its fullness and we will dwell in new life with him. And when you have him, when you understand that he is with you, all the flaming darts of the evil one just look silly. They look foolish by comparison. Because we realize that this is a God who will indeed watch over us no matter what may come. No matter what 2021 will hold. No matter whether or not we get the vaccine tomorrow or have to wait six months. Whether the sun is shining or there's a blizzard outside. You can still make it to church. Good job, y'all. The point is, God is with us. In Jesus, we know that we have the victory, and that is where we place our trust. That is where we place our hope, because he is ultimately trustworthy. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord. Paul says, this is the shield that you've already been given. Just pick it up. Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And when we look to him, we know that we stand firm and stand secure. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed our hope and our trust, the one in whom we can truly have faith, that we say, Amen.